Most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad wa ajalala Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome once again to our life, the Islamic Answer series, where we were discussing the last part concerning the scholar and teacher in Islam. We were trying to focus on the merits or the ranks of the scholar and the teacher. And we said that this comes after a long and detailed discussion that we had on the characteristics and traits of the scholar, which we also said are at the same time the duties and the responsibilities of the teacher and the scholar. And when we went through them, there were multiple reminders that the duties and the responsibilities of this person are many and that they carry a very heavy burden. They have a lot to do and they have a heavy responsibility that they have to handle and fulfill and observe. And so one may wonder after all of this, how, alaykum as wa rahmatullah, how or why is it that someone would still want to be a teacher or a scholar in our religion, given all of these responsibilities and all of these duties that they have to carry, especially when we look at the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala seems to be a lot less forgiving of their mistakes and their sins and that there is a lot more that needs to be taken into consideration when you act, including a careful observation of your intentions and looking far into the repercussions of every word you say and every action you do because you do not only represent yourself, you are now speaking on behalf of religion on behalf of God, you become a symbol, people associate what you say and what you do with religion, whether you want it or not, whether you agree with it or not, this is how you are viewed. And so the duties, the responsibilities that come with this are many and they're heavy. And so that discussion I think was clear, but on the other side, and we see a lot of this in our religion too, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is fair. And in return for all of this, if you actually fulfill those duties and you live up to those responsibilities and everything that you're supposed to do in the sense that you meet the traits and the characteristics that you're supposed to uh, personify or display in your character, in your attitude and how you behave in the world, then in return, there are amazing merits and ranks awaiting you. And the greatness is that not, yes, we have and we have seen some narrations that say that yes, there is greatness in this world. For sure, there can be a lot of greatness in this world. But the true greatness, if you do all of this, is in the afterlife. It's not what awaits you in this world because in this world, the truth is the more of this you take on, the less you feel like there is an actual material reward for any of this in this world. There's too much sacrifice, there's so much that you have to take on, there's a lot of responsibility, and there's a lot of things that will discourage you in this world from pursuing this line of action. So in return, what keeps you motivated and what keeps encouraging you to continue on this path is the amazing rewards that are awaiting you in the afterlife 
and how you think that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is viewing you. Your, your true greatness, and we talked about this last time we met, your true greatness is in the famous narration attributed to Prophet Isa alayhi salam, you are considered great in the heavenly kingdom. The one who learns, who acquires knowledge, and who acts on that knowledge, and who shares and teaches that knowledge, is called or is deemed great in the heavenly kingdom, in the kingdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. People in this world, they may not realize that you're great or you're not great, but in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you are great. So if this is what motivates you, this is the ultimate purpose of your existence, and you understand that, then that should be enough motivation to pursue this path all the way. It's not just that I learned, and we saw the greatness of learning, of seeking knowledge and learning. No, here we're talking about you go the full way. You learn and you teach. You share what you learn. You spread it to others. And inshallah today, we'll see if time permits, we reach those ahadith that talk about the ranks and the rewards of achieving that line of actually being able to share it with others so that others now start acting based on what you were the messenger and the message that you carried to them. Now they change their attitude, they change their behavior, they change their beliefs. And this is where your true greatness shows. And this is actually what justifies your greatness in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that you're now affecting others. It's going beyond just you. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. So what we talked about very quickly until now is that part of the merits is to know that the hadith were saying to know that someone who receives true knowledge, if you think that the knowledge that you are receiving, you're acquiring, is this true knowledge that Allah brings you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we saw the ahadith saying that consider yourself very fortunate. Consider yourself of those that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to treat well in this world. You'll remember the ahadith were saying, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to do good towards a servant, what does he give that servant? Knowledge. Okay, so there's already a merit and a rank that comes with this if you know how to appreciate what you're receiving, the nature of that knowledge. We saw a hadith around that. We saw the ahadith around the greatness in the heavenly kingdom. We saw the ahadith that talk about the notion of charity or infaq being it in its greatest form, the best way to perform this infaq, this act of charity in this world, is to actually share knowledge, not wealth. As important as it is to share wealth, it's the sharing of knowledge that is the true meaning of infaq, according to multiple hadith from Ahlul Bayt And there was a whole, there was a question around this very quickly, infaq. So the root of the word nafaqa and how it's used in our religion is basically to mean that something proceeds until it becomes unseen or until something disappears. So from this root, you see the word, for instance, nafaq, a tunnel, right? It's something that suddenly disappears. It goes until it disappears. Or for instance, nafaqa or infaq, I spend until it disappears. I have no more money, no more wealth, nothing more to share, to spend, right? That's infaq. Or nifaq. Nifaq is now in the more metaphorical sense that you're doing something, but it's hidden. 
it becomes hidden. Or some have said, you continue so far in dissimulating that it completely hides away your true intentions or your true beliefs. That's nifaq. So that's the root of the word, and that's how you see the same root in infaq and nifaq, for instance, even though they seem to be very different words. In any case, so thank you for that great question. Um, we saw how in the merits of the scholars that they are the trustees of God, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has entrusted them upon the teachings, upon religion, upon the prophetic teachings, what he has asked the prophets to act as messenger with the knowledge that they carry. And we saw also uh, around this discussion that they are trustees, that they are also trustees not only over the knowledge, but perhaps over people because of the knowledge that they carry, and therefore what are the ramifications of that. We saw a hadith that talk about the scholars or the teachers being the closest people in rank to prophets in the afterlife. And we saw the hadith that talk about, and we spent a little bit of time on this, that talk about how, for instance, looking at the face of a scholar is an act of worship. And we gave a lot more examples that when you look at something, our religion says there's a lot of things that if you can, if you look at them, with the right attitude for the right reason that they can be acts of worship. So this is not so strange to see a hadith saying looking at the face of the scholar is an act of worship. And we said the real reason is explained in some other hadith where Imam Sadiq was saying this is the case when the face that you are looking at reminds you of God or reminds you of the afterlife. This is why it's an act of worship. It's bringing you closer to God. It's not because of the face of this person specifically. It's what it symbolizes for you. The effect that it has on you spiritually. And if that doesn't, the Imam said, if that's not it, this is not the effect that you're getting, then it is fitna to look at their face. Okay, That's what you want from the scholar that you're looking at. That They, they remind you of the afterlife. What's awaiting you after death. Okay, bringing you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this was the quick recap. We'll continue where we left off with the next subheading uh, in, in this uh, topic. So there's a number of ahadith that talk about how scholars are the true source of life. I'm not going to go through any of them, but in general we have ahadith that say that scholars are the true source of life. Life being associated with knowledge, and knowledge being the true life in this world. And we saw a hadith about that, so I'm not going to go through those ahadith. They're very um, symbolic or metaphorical in that way, but those ahadith are present just for us to know. The next ahadith that I, I do want to go through, because I think this is where we start to get into the real true ranks, merits of the scholars, their death, the ahadith that talk about the death of a scholar, and we already saw one, we're going to come back to it, uh, and we see a few more. And the ahadith that talk about the merits of the scholars in the afterlife. And this whole discussion, is, this is where we, we reach the, the climax of this discussion. Because really this is where we're going to see the true merits of everything. The true rank, the true status, the reality of anything is not in this world. We see it in the afterlife. We see it outside of this material world. Okay, so the first hadith around the death of a scholar, the Holy Prophet ﷺ, in one hadith he says, خُذُوا الْعِلْمَ قَبْلَ أَنْ يَنْفَدْ 
قالوا وكيف ينفد وفينا كتاب الله فغضب لا يغضبه الله ثم قال فكلتكم أمهاتكم أولم تكن التوراة والإنجيل في بني إسرائيل ثم لم تغن عنهم شيئا إن ذهاب العلم ذهاب حملته قالها ثلاثة So it said that the Holy Prophet said acquire knowledge before it is taken away so those there who heard the Holy Prophet say this, they said, they asked, how can it be taken away when we have the book of God among us? There's already something to be said here. So the Holy Prophet ﷺ, the person who narrates the hadith says, so he became angry. He says, فَغَضِبْ لَا يُغْضِبُهُ الله. May God never make him angry. Okay, he said, so the Holy Prophet got angry because they said that. And then he said, may your mothers be bereaved of you, which is a well-known expression in Arabic. I'll come back to this. Were it not, were not the Torah and the gospel, were they not among the children of Israel? Bani Israel, did they not have the Torah and the Injil with them? Did that prevent them in any way from going astray? Knowledge is taken away when those who carry it go away. So the Holy Prophet started by saying, acquire knowledge before it's taken away. The people understood knowledge as being, well, you have taught us the Qur'an, we have learned the Qur'an. Is this not enough? All the knowledge that you wanted to share with us is contained in this book. So the Holy Prophet objected or rejected this line of thinking, telling them previous nations also had their sacred books with them, their scriptures with them, and they still went astray. Okay, and then he said, knowledge is taken away when those who carry it go away. He repeated it three times. So knowledge goes away when those who carry it go away. There's a discussion that we're not going to have now. Again, I'm just parking this so that we come back to it. There's definitely a link here with community. The place, the position of a scholar in a community. That they are the ones, خُذُوا الْعِلْمَ قَبْلَ أَنْ يَنْفَدْ Okay, so that's one. Two, a few remarks about this hadith. This hadith, I've only seen it in Sunni sources. And the reason I say this is sometimes there are things in the hadith that are a little odd. They stick out when we compare them to the rest of the hadith that we find in our school. This is definitely one of them. So there's a couple of things in this hadith that stick out. The biggest one is this expression from the Holy Prophet in which he says, This is a very well-known expression. And we have it in multiple sources from some of the Imams. We have it stated perhaps once or more in the events of Karbala, for instance. We have it narrated from Imam Ali السلام, who has said it multiple times, many, many times. But if you go through the whole corpus of the ahadith of the Holy Prophet it is extremely rare, not to say it's impossible to find, I've actually dug for it, looked for it, and I found it in two other ahadith, and even those two are very questionable, whether we can attribute them to the Holy Prophet or not. So this is not to say that it is a horrible, you know, vulgar wording or construction or insult, no, the Arabs did not use that expression in that way. When they say, you know, may, may your mother be bereaved, may your mother lose you. 
Okay? It's a form of telling the person, you know, how lost are you? And depending on the context, it could be more or less, you know, more or less emphasis on that aspect of it. So the expression in and of itself is not that problematic. Where to me it's problematic is that why is it so rare in the ahadith? So this makes you right away, it may be raises a flag that this is not the normal way that the Holy Prophet explained things or spoke to people. Yes, in this case they are saying that he got angry because of their misunderstanding or where their mind went when, when he said what he said. But usually, in other ahadith, when the Holy Prophet gets angry, he still doesn't use this wording and this terminology and this way of reacting. So there's something perhaps that sticks out in this hadith, and that's why I mentioned that this hadith is not found in our sources. That's one. There's a second point that I thought is beautiful, but that requires a note. When the Holy Prophet says, make sure that you're learning before knowledge goes away, the initial reaction of the Muslims, if we want to give them the benefit of the doubt, is actually a beautiful reaction. Because they feel that all knowledge should be contained in the Holy Quran. And for us, this should be a huge lesson too. Because of how far we are from the Holy Quran. Because we don't have that initial reaction. When we think about knowledge, we don't necessarily think, I will find anything I need, everything I need in the Holy Quran. And this should be, perhaps, a natural inclination, reaction from the good Muslim. Especially at a time when there is no prophet and there is no imam. Okay? So there's something to be said here. That's one. However, the reaction of the Holy Prophet tells us another story. The Holy Prophet is telling them, you're completely missing the point. Yes, this is the book of God. Yes, all the teachings of God are in this book. But he's telling them the Holy Quran by itself on its own is not enough. You need something with it. You will go astray. Even if you just rely and you have the Holy Quran, you will still go astray. Why? And we have multiple ahadith around this. Because the Holy Qur'an is open to interpretation. And there are people, there are those, and Islamic history is the best proof for this, who are able to make the Qur'an say all sorts of things that the Holy Qur'an is saying and not saying. So you need something else that becomes the criteria that tells you, is this a proper interpretation of what you're saying or not? Does the Holy Qur'an actually say what you're claiming that it says or not? And so here the Holy Prophet says, no, the way to know this is to have people who carry knowledge and they will be the criteria. They will be the guarantee that your understanding of the Holy Quran is correct or incorrect. And once again, as we said from the beginning of this part of the series, the true meaning of the scholar and the teacher becomes clear. That it is Ahlul Bayt. This is the only infallible way of understanding the Qur'an. And that's why the Holy Prophet in our school of thought, he never said, just rely on the Qur'an. He said, those two go together. You cannot have one of them without the other. You can't have Ahlul Bayt without the Qur'an, and you cannot have the Qur'an without Ahlul Bayt. Otherwise, you will go astray. And this is exactly the 
point of perhaps one of the rarest and most authentic hadith that we have in our religion. Hadith al-Thaqalain. Why does the Holy Prophet insist on this hadith that he constantly repeats? Hadith al-Thaqalain. That I am leaving two heavy things, two weighty things behind. One of them is greater than the other, he says. So that in case you have doubt about one, you go towards the other end, they will prove each other. One of them is the book of God. He says it's like a rope that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has descended from the heavens. You need to hold on to it so that you don't get lost. It's your safety rope. And the other one are my Ahl al-Bayt. The other one are my Ahl al-Bayt. The other one is my Ahl al-Bayt. Make sure that you hold on to them. Why? Why this insistence? He's saying it's not enough. The Holy Quran is not enough. And this hadith is a perfect example of this. When the Muslims react this way, and as I said to me, it's very interesting that this hadith, I can't find it in our sources. I could only find it in Sunni sources. When they told the Holy Prophet, but isn't it enough that we have the book of God? What do you mean before knowledge ends? Before knowledge goes away? Go learn it quickly before the knowledge goes away. He tells them the knowledge goes away when the people who carry the knowledge go away. The book is there. But the book is not enough to guide you and to prevent you from going astray. You need something else to guarantee that. So beyond this, if we want to look at this, you know, beyond the theological dimension of the hadith, I think there's a very important point related to the person who carries the knowledge in this hadith too. And so in this case, their reaction was the Holy Quran, which is the epitome in our mind, the zenith, the maximum, the absolute perfection of knowledge contained in a book would be the Holy Quran, and the Holy Prophet says, still not enough. You need a person. So if we were to now bring down the discussion to any general book, Knowledge is contained in books. Knowledge is not going to go away. It's there. And today, so many books. In fact, they are now all digital. A couple of clicks and you have access to thousands or tens of thousands of books. Knowledge is there. Does this hadith still apply? Yes, it does. Because the Holy Prophet is saying, learn it before those who carry it go away. And he doesn't necessarily say, and to me this is the link with community, he doesn't necessarily say before they die. He says before they go away. This person is available today. If there's something that you can learn from them, learn it from them. Tomorrow they may not be available. They may travel. They may be too busy. They may get sick. Or they may die. It doesn't matter. The Holy Prophet is saying the knowledge will go away. The books are there. And you have to, let's all be objective here, go back through your life review your life and see how much knowledge did you learn and from which sources. And this becomes the easiest argument for this hadith. The books are there. They are there. The majority of the knowledge that you learned, did it come from the books or did it come from people? It's the people who carry the knowledge who affected you. You know the knowledge is in the books. You can go to the books and you can learn from them. And most likely you did learn a lot from books. But in terms of a percentage, what you acquired from people as opposed to what you acquired from books, let's say. 
much more came from people, much more came from the teacher and the scholar than it came from the books. So even at a very you know, practical day-to-day -day application of this hadith, we see that the Holy Prophet is talking about something that is full of wisdom. Make sure that you take full advantage. If you feel someone has knowledge, take full advantage of that. That will go away. And the general rule is 100% it will go away. It's not that if or maybe it will go It will go away. Everything in this world goes away. Nothing stays the same forever. So make sure that you take full advantage. So there's a whole discussion that we can have here, but we're not going to have it. But the point is simply to say that knowledge, as we said from the beginning of the series, knowledge does not exist in a raw state. There's no thing in the world that is just knowledge, just raw knowledge. Knowledge has to take a form. So it can be a book, it can be a person, it can be a context, it can be a gathering, it can be a lesson, whatever it may be. But knowledge has to take a certain shape. And this is very important in our world too, at a very practical level, at the level of communities. We have to sit and think, what's the best way, what's the best clothing, what's the best envelope, what's the best context to have knowledge, to share knowledge, to save knowledge, to discuss knowledge, whatever it may be. What's the best form for that? What's the best format? And it's not one. There's no one answer to this. This is a discussion in a community. This is something that constantly has to be adapted and changed and adjusted for every day and every audience and every context. Okay? But this is an important piece. There's no such thing as just knowledge. Knowledge is contained in a container. Okay, so what's the container that we go towards? Next hadith from Imam al-Sadiq So we're still talking, as we said right now, the subheading is to really understand the merits of the scholar or the teacher by looking at death. Okay, so that was the first hadith. The second hadith from Imam al-Sadiq ma min ahadin yamutu min al-mu'mineen أحب إلى إبليس عليكم السلام ورحمة الله أحب إلى إبليس من موت فقيه. So Imam Sadiq السلام says there is none who dies among the believers that Satan that Iblis loves more than the death of a faqih. So the death that Satan or Iblis loves the most is the death of the faqih. So the faqih, as we said, is whom? It's the person who has vast specialized knowledge in religion. Okay? It's not just someone who carries some knowledge. It's a, a lot of knowledge and it's considered specialized. Fiqh in, in Arabic means to have deep, wide and deep, broad and deep knowledge of something. That's the fiqh. Okay? So, and then it's used technically about religion in general and then more specifically with time about the legal aspect of our religion. Okay, so the hadith says there is none who dies among the believers that Satan loves more than the death of the faqih. This hadith, this is often quoted as a full hadith from Muhammad Sadiq salam. We have a version of this hadith that this is a part of a longer hadith. Okay, just so that we know. So that fuller hadith is as follows. So An Sulaiman bin Khalid qal, Sa'altu Aba Abdullah alayhi salam an qawli Allah. وَمَنْ يُؤْتَ الْحِكْمَةِ فَقَدْ أُوْتِيَ خَيْرًا كَثِيرًا 
فقال إن الحكمة المعرفة والتفقه في الدين فمن فقه منكم فهو حكيم وما من أحد يموت من المؤمنين أحب إلى إبليس من موت فقيه So this is the fuller version of the hadith So Suleiman bin Khalid says I asked Imam Sadiq alayhi salam Abu Abdullah so Imam Sadiq about the saying of God so this is a verse in the Quran this is in Surah Al-Baqarah and whoever is given wisdom he has certainly been given a great amount of good so in relation to the discussion we had last week right yu'ta utiya khayran kathira in verse 269 Surah Al-Baqarah so he said Imam Sadiq alayhi salam so he's asking Imam Sadiq what does this verse mean when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says whoever has been given the one who has been given wisdom he has indeed been given a lot of good or a great amount of good he said indeed wisdom is knowledge is ma'rifah and tafaqquh fi deen okay so ma'rifah we can say generally speaking is knowledge in this case tafaqquh is the more technical specialized deep knowledge we can say it that way However, I'm going to add something. This is my commentary. That ma'rifah, if you go back to a lot of the ahadith, is a special type of knowledge. It's not used just to know. Ma'rifah in the ahadith is used for knowledge about beliefs. Ma'rifah is about knowing God, knowing the Prophet, knowing the hujjah in the ruwayat, the hujjah being the imam. Okay, so knowing the Imam is always ma'rifah. So ma'arif is usually today we would say it's aqaid, it's the beliefs. Ma'rifah is usually used in association with having knowledge of God, religion, prophethood, imama, afterlife, things that generally we say these are the main beliefs. It's not about the actions. Okay, and now maybe we see in the ahadith the glimpse of the source of where that initial distinction happened that later became full-fledged sciences. You have a science of ma'arif, beliefs, aqaid, and then you will have fiqh. So here the imam splits them in two. He, the imam, is the one who is saying, إِنَّ الْحِكْمَةَ الْمَعْرِفَةَ وَالتَّفَقُّهُ فِي الدِّينَ Okay? So there's an aspect that is theoretical, that is in your heart, that you carry, and one that has to do with how do you act in this world. Ma'rifah and tafaqquh. That's if you want to go more specialized. Perhaps that's what the imam is alluding to. Perhaps not. فَمَنْ فَقُهَ مِنْكُمْ فَهُوَ حَكِيمٌ So the hikmah, the wisdom that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in this verse, if you have been given this wisdom, then you have indeed been given a lot of good. The imam says, فَمَنْ فَقُهَ مِنْكُمْ فَهُوَ حَكِيمٌ The one who has this vast, deep understanding of religion, is the one who has this wisdom. And then the Imam added the part that we saw in the previous hadith, there is none who dies among the believers that Satan loves more than the death of a faqih, the person who has this deep and specialized knowledge in religion. So, why is it that suddenly Iblis has a party when this faqih passes away? And we're going to see the answer in the next ahadith. But in short, it's what we started with. Because this person, as good as any of us are, we are ourselves. 
You can be the best person in the world, but all the good that you do is for yourself. No one is affected by the good that you do. You worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you're a good person. All of this, the good, your, the effects, the good effects of your actions remain at your level. So when you leave, yes, there is happiness on the side of Iblis. That one less good person has left this world. There's one less good person in this world. Yes, that makes sense. But that's very different from Iblis getting rid of someone who is affected who's affecting 10 or 50 or 200 or 2,000 or 2 million people. All of those people are either good or becoming good or could become good so long as this person is there doing what they do. This is the difference. And this is what makes Iblis so happy. The effort that he has to put into that person, the effect of that person is so much bigger. It's amplified, it's multiplied, it's exponential as opposed to the individual person who is good, but who is not doing this work. Which brings us to the next point. So therefore the faqih, and this teacher, and this scholar, is not the person who just carries a lot of information. It has to be a person who is affecting other people in a positive, in a good way, for this hadith to make sense. Otherwise, why would Iblis care? What's the difference between this person and another good person? If this knowledge is not affecting anyone, it's not having any reach, it's not changing the world in any way. Okay, so this is another hadith that brings us back to the duties and characteristics of the scholar and the teacher. So the role of the person is very important. Two more points related to this. The first one is, therefore... If I want to go closer to this category of people that really annoy and frustrate Iblis when I die, I therefore know what I have to do. Okay, This is a huge merit and criteria in this world. That when I die, Iblis is happy. He hates my presence in this world. I'm acting against him. I am part of the army fighting Satan, fighting Iblis. What do I have to do? It's not just that I learn, but that I affect others. I have to have a clear effect effect on other people. I have to produce results in the world. That's one. Now, I chose the word very carefully here. I said, if you want to go closer to this person, you want to have a similar, I can't say identical, effect. Why? Because the hadith was talking about a faqih. The hadith was talking about someone who has vast and deep knowledge, specialized technical knowledge. And this is the difference. Yes, I may affect a few more people by knowing a little bit more. But to really fully fall in this category, there's something more that this person has that I can never have if my level of knowledge does not really reach the level of being a faqih, which is what? Which is that if you are in the presence of a faqih, you feel psychologically, whether you realize it or not, you feel that this is a secure amount and type of knowledge. People can rely on you as a trustworthy source of knowledge. When they don't know, they come to you. The other person who may know a little bit, it's always questionable. This is a very big difference 
This is the presence of the faqih in a community, in a society. You feel safe. You don't need to know everything. The person is there. The reference is there. Whenever you need to, you go back. You're in safe hands. You don't even need to do the research. You don't even need to spend the time. You're not sure? Go back to the source. The source is there. He's a faqih. That's his job. Well, it's not really his job. The person took it on. This is therefore their rank and their merit. And this is why they have this effect on Iblis. And I thought this is an important point to make because the hadith is saying that this is the person who really hurts Iblis during their life and makes them happy in their death. They hurt Iblis so long as they are alive. Yes, by their effect. There is an effect because of their action. But there is an effect because of the reliance, the trustworthiness of the information they have. That you know this is someone who knows their stuff inside out. They are a reliable source. They provide certainty about the information that you need from them. And we're going to come back to this point of certainty in religion. I'm going to come back to it a little bit later if we get to that hadith. Okay? But this is an important point. Next hadith. I'm not going to add any more comments to this hadith. We went through it. I don't remember if it was this specific hadith or a similar one from Imam al-Sadiq salam in which he said, إِذَا مَاتَ الْمُؤْمِنَ الْفَقِيهِ ثَلُمَ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ ثُلْمَةٌ لَا يَسُدُّهَا شَيْءٍ When a knowledgeable believer, and I can come back because there's a point here in this hadith that is also mentioned in the previous hadith. I'll come back to it in a second. When a knowledgeable believer, knowledge in the sense of this deep, specialized, technical knowledge, when a knowledgeable believer dies, a gap or a hole appears in Islam that cannot be filled by anything, Imam Sadiq says. So of course, this really, truly applies in the case of, you know, Ahlul Bayt for instance. But anyone who carries those true teachings, they are going to fall in this category. To the extent that they carry that teaching and affect people with that teaching, they fall in this category. When they leave this world, there is a hole that will never be filled. That's it. And it stays that way forever. Now, some of our scholars have added to this. And they say there is a part here that is unsaid. So we keep thinking about this when it says thaluma, one way, for instance, the example I would probably use because of the wording, I would say it's like a rip in the fabric. Okay? The fabric of Islam, imagine this religion being a piece of fabric, there's now a rip in it. That rip can never really be fixed. You can't put anything to really fill it. Okay, that's what one way of understanding the hadith. But another way could be if you have a construction made of a wall of bricks and you remove a brick now there's a hole and so some scholar use that image some of our scholars and they say what happens is that the moment there's a hole that hole keeps growing and it affects all the other people that should have benefited from that scholar this is what the hadith is talking about it's not just that in the grand scheme of things the knowledge that this person carries can never be replicated in a lot of cases, no. There's other people who will show up who will have as much if not more knowledge. But the moment that person disappears, 
There were people who were benefiting or could have benefited from that person specifically at that time, at that place. That will no longer be the case. Now for someone else to come and replace them at that time and place in the same way, to affect the people in the same way, that will never happen again. That's it. Each one of us is unique. And so this is one of the meanings of this hadith. This is the uniqueness of the person who leaves this world. That's one. The second point, and it was something I should have said in the, in the previous hadith too, is that Ahlul Bayt we may miss it, but it's there in the hadith. They don't just say the person who is, that it should be implied, but they make a point to say it out loud and explicitly. It's not just that this is a person who is carrying a lot of knowledge. It's not just that they are a fiqih. They added a word in this hadith specifically, the Imam says, There's a spiritual aspect to this. This is the person who has sincerity, who has true faith, intentions, the right beliefs, and with all of that, they carry this amount of technical, specialized knowledge. This is what hurts Iblis. And in the previous hadith, مَا مِنْ أَحَدٍ يَمُوتُ مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ The Imam was saying the same thing. From all the believers, there is none who dies who will hurt Iblis more than. So the Imam is making sure that we reach the faqih through a criteria that we spent a lot of time talking about. That the Imam is summarizing in this word, which is mu'min. Okay, so this is the whole spiritual, ethical, moral dimension of this person. Next hadith from. Imam Al-Kadhim salam Again in the same vein إِذَا مَاتَ الْمُؤْمِنْ بَكَتْ عَلَيْهِ الْمَلَائِكَةِ وَبِقَاعُ الْأَرْضِ الَّتِي كَانَ يَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ عَلَيْهَا When we went through that first hadith, I said it's a reminder. We went through it a few weeks ago. I said some things in the commentary around that hadith. So I thought I'd bring a hadith that explains that. I said the person who is a believer is someone who will have a special link with this world. The world recognizes you as a believer. Today there's all sorts of ways we can explain this. I can use more modern language, right? Let's say the vibrations you emit in this world are different. Whatever you need to understand this hadith, translate it in the way you want. But these are there are too many hadith around this, too many verses of the Quran around this. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created a world that recognizes good and bad. That interacts with good and bad. And there's a lot that can be said about what the angels do and how the angels act in this world that is related to this, by the way. That they recognize you. The hadith, for instance, that talk about if you recite the Qur'an in your house. A house where the holy Qur'an is recited. The hadith, in some of the hadith, they say they shine to the people of the heavens like the stars shine to the people of the earth. When you look, you see it's all dark. The heavens are all dark except for bright spots, stars. These hadith say there is something in the Holy Quran being recited in a house that suddenly attracts the attention of those who live in the other realm, the heavenly realm, the angelic realm. 
To me, these are all ahadith that are trying to make us understand the reality that we live in is very different from how we understand it. Okay, so this is exactly this type of hadith. So the hadith says, إِذَا مَاتَ الْمُؤْمِنْ بَكَتْ عَلَيْهِ الْمَلَائِكَةِ وَبِقَاعُ الْأَرْضِ الَّتِي كَانَ يَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ عَلَيْهَا وَأَبْوَابُ السَّمَاءِ الَّتِي كَانَ يُصْعَدُ بِأَعْمَالِهِ فِيهَا وَالثُّلِمَ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ ثُلْمَةٌ لَا يَسُدُّهَا شَيْءٍ So the Imam adds an explanation to this. He says, قَالْ لِأَنَّ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ الْفُقَهَاءِ حُصُونُ الْإِسْلَامِ And in another version, حُصُونُ الْمُسْلِمِينَ كَحُصْنِ سُورِ الْمَدِينَةِ لَهَا So this is a hadith from Imam Al-Kadhim alayhi salam in which he says, when a believer dies, now notice how this the hadith begins. Okay, the end of the hadith is talking about a specific type of believer, but the Imam did not start with that specific type of believer. He says, when a believer dies, the angels weep for him. And we're going to have more explanation in other ahadith about this. The angels weep for the believer. So any believer who dies, the angels weep for him. As well as the lands on which he used to worship God. And this is, by the way, why. Many of our scholars say, make sure you have a spot in your house that is designated for your worship. This is where you sit and recite Quran. This is where you stand for your prayer. You want that spot to recognize you. Now, you may know it or not, you may realize it or not, but we have too many of these ahadith, too many of the verses of the Quran that tell us that this spot is going to bear witness that you used to worship God on it in the afterlife. Okay, so this spot where you used to perform your act of worship, if you're a believer, this hadith says, it weeps when you leave this world. Because it means that you are no longer worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on it. Okay, as well as the lands on which he used to worship God. And the doors of the heavens through which his righteous deeds ascended. And I've told you that we have a hadith that say that the moment we enter into this world, Each one of us has a unique gate, a unique door through which all of our good deeds go to the heavens. Okay, this is not material. This is metaphorical language. But each one of us has our own channel. That channel knows when we disappear, when our time in this world has ended. And so that channel weeps because no longer will there be good deeds going through it. So, and the doors of the gates through which his righteous deeds ascended. And then the Imam added, and there is a gap in Islam that cannot be filled by anything, or in this religion that cannot be filled by anything. Then the Imam added, that is because, لِأَنَّ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ الْفُقَهَاءِ So the Imam was talking about the believer. The hadith started, إِذَا مَاتَ الْمُؤْمِنَ the Imam was talking about the believer. And then he says, the reason for all of this is that when the faqih dies, he stops performing his role. Now we see that there's something that needs to be explained here. He went from the believer to the faqih. Okay, he says that is because the knowledgeable believers are the fortresses of Islam or the fortresses of religion. Just like the fortresses that protect a city or the fortresses protecting, surrounding a city.
So what do we understand from this hadith? First, as we said, the imam went from believer to scholar. The beginning of the hadith is believer, the end of the hadith is scholar. So perhaps this tells us that the imam is talking about a spectrum. This is the case even for the believer. So imagine the scholar. So the imam says, I'm not going to explain to you why this is the case for the believer. I'm going to give you the example of the, the upper limit, the scholar. What does the scholar represent? The scholar represents, as the imam says, they are fortresses. Okay, So he brings it back to the role that this person performs, which brings us again to the duty and the responsibility of the scholar. This applies to the person who is playing that role. It's not enough for you to just carry the knowledge and it stays in your mind and in your heart. Good for you. But if you're not affecting others with it, then this full description does not apply to you. There's something missing. You didn't fulfill the duties associated with all of that knowledge. Secondly, well clearly here, the Imam is talking about two traits. If those two traits are combined, one of them is already great. So imagine the greatness of the two combined. One of them is if you are a believer. That by itself, the Imam is saying, you are a great entity in this world. You may not realize it, but you are a great entity in this world. The world recognizes you and reacts to your death. The angels weep, the, place, the places where you worshipped weep, the gate associated with you, your channel, your unique channel, weeps. You are a great entity. And you are a much greater entity if in addition to being a believer, you are also a faqih. Okay, so it goes that much higher. That's two. Three, as we said, the role. The role of this person is the justification that the Imam gave. That this is someone who is performing a specific duty. In this case, the Imam went further than just to say, because you're teaching people. He gave you a mental image. He told you that the role that you are performing is the same role that a fortress performs around the city. What does a fortress do? It protects the city. There are no attacks that can come in so long as that fortress is there. It's impossible to get to that city so long as the fortress is standing. It's a great wall around it. This is what's used for protection. This is the role that you're performing as a scholar, as a teacher. Which means that this is constantly changing. You have to see, and we saw a hadith around this, when we talked about the duty, the responsibility of the scholar. That you have to have a very clear vision, strategy, of what your priorities are. How do you teach and what do you teach? What do you spread? It has to be something relevant. It has to be something that is protecting those learning from actual attacks. Because you're acting as a fortress. You're not a useless wall. You know where the attacks are coming from. You know how to act as a fortress. You're equipping them with things that are going to act to protect them. So you have to have enough of an understanding about the world. The society, the community, the time, the, the means that are being used to attack people, to change their beliefs, to distort their views, to change their morality. And this is what you have to work on. 
You have to find the right tool, the right weapon, the right protection to give those people so that those attacks are now going to end up making them victims of these attacks. So you're acting as a fortress. Okay? The knowledge that you share becomes the fortress. Yeah, that's the other discussion that I don't know if we want to have or not. But in short, in a couple of minutes, if these hadith, this is just one example, and we have many, and as I said, we talked about this topic before, when we were trying to explain or to define a little bit more clearly some of the main roles of the scholars, especially during the time of Ghaibah. Okay, we saw a hadith that specifically talk about that. If you want to act as someone who carries knowledge to others, what do you focus on and how do you do it? We have a hadith about this. In today's world, but this has always been the case, it's just that in today's world there's a lot of it, or perhaps it's a lot more present because of social media and the internet and other means. When you have knowledge, obviously, and this is a normal human trait, you want to show how much knowledge you have. If that becomes the intent, then that becomes a very quick slippery slope into using that knowledge in the wrong way. The point should not be that I show you how much knowledge I have or to impress you that I know a lot. I have a lot of specialized, technical, vast, deep, subtle knowledge. That shouldn't be the point. The point should be that I'm equipping you with the knowledge that I have. I share it with you so that it acts as this hadith said, as a fortress. So that now you are safe going out into the world with the knowledge that I shared with you. In that case, I am acting based on what we saw last week. I'm a good trustee over that knowledge. A good example is the exact opposite. And this is a, I'm going to say, a natural tendency that can happen where you take the knowledge and you present it to the people in a way that does the exact opposite, has the opposite effect. And there's a lot of that happening. You present the knowledge, you do have knowledge, you have a lot of knowledge. But the manner in which it's presented does not give the people the fortress they need to protect them. In fact, it creates doubt, and questions, and uncertainty, and people thought that they believed things, now they no longer believe in anything. You didn't rectify and give them an even stronger foundation for their beliefs, which is your job as a scholar. This is what you're supposed to do. There are a hadith that we saw earlier, and I didn't go too far into them. We focused on the etiquettes, the manner in which you teach. We saw that even Imam Sajjad uses this term. He says, "An la You do not break the person you're teaching. And we said one of the ways to do that is through arrogance and bad manners. Okay, I know. Therefore, you have to treat me as the superior being that I am because I carry knowledge. And I become repulsive 
because I'm impatient, because I'm arrogant, because, because. And so people are no longer interested in knowledge because of my bad etiquette and my bad manners. They no longer want to know anything from me. Even though the knowledge I carry might be very good, I broke this person. That's what we talked about. The other way to break someone that we didn't talk about too much, we hinted to it, but very quickly, is that I use this knowledge and I break this person. The person doesn't know. I'm a specialist. I spent 10, 15, 30 years studying this. When I tell them everything that you think you know about God, it's all wrong. Those three proofs that you think you have about how you attain true belief in God, they're all false. They're full of philosophical flaws. Here are some arguments against them. And have a good day. So I left the person, based on these ahadith, if I want to use the same wording, I broke the person. I broke their belief. Now they have doubts. I thought I believed in God. I had really good reasons for believing in God. The arguments I had are full of mistakes. When I leave this encounter, when I leave this lesson, when I leave this lecture, when I leave this 10 years of studying with this person, whatever it may be, do I have a stronger belief or a weaker belief? Do I have a belief that is more full of certainty and strong arguments? I'm more solid? I'm closer to God because of it? Or is my belief shaken to the core? Everything I thought I knew, the little that I thought I knew is actually all wrong and all uncertain and all questionable and now I'm full of doubts. I don't even know. I think I still believe but I'm not sure and there's all sorts of holes in my belief. If this is what the scholar is doing, do you think that this applies to them, this hadith, when it says that they are acting like a fortress? They are equipping you to deal with the attacks of the world or are they not being the attack themselves? Sometimes this is done for good, with good intentions. It doesn't matter. What we're focused on right now is the effect it has. And this might become one instance where you are breaking the person. Your intent might be good. Your belief is kind of 80% good based on what I hear, what I see. It's 80% good. I want to try to get it to 90 so there are some nuances, but I have to undo some of the things that you believe in. The intent is good. I just never get to them. So I got rid of some of the stuff. Now you're down to 30% instead of 80% that you had originally. You're now down to 30% of good belief. You think you believe in something. And I don't build you back up to 90. Now I leave you hanging. Good luck. You're not acting as a fortress in this way. And this is why you have to be very careful when you enter into a topic, when you talk about any field, any issue, any problem, if you, especially if it's revisionist. Revisionist is you take something that is generally accepted, taken for granted, well understood by a certain community, even of scholars sometimes. And you want to come and say, we need to revise all of this. There was a initial premise that everybody took for granted, it was actually mistaken. You better have really good proofs, good evidence for it, and you go all the way to the end to rebuild that belief. Otherwise, you're acting 
in the opposite direction that the narrations are telling you. Yes, at the end people might say, what an amazing scholar, how much they know, their knowledge is so subtle and so deep and so technical. This is what the people see. This is not what God sees. What you did is you broke the person. You did the opposite of your duty. The opposite of what the someone who is entrusted with knowledge is supposed to be doing. If it's technical, keep it at the technical level. If there's a revisionist aspect to what you want to propose, make sure it goes all the way to the end. So that you never fall in the mistake of destroying people's belief, creating doubts, and not rebuilding it back up so that at the end their belief is even stronger, reinforced, more solid than it was in the beginning. And as I said, this is a very easy slippery slope the more you know. The more you study, religion is no different than any other field. When you think from the outside, when you look at it, you think that things are very monolithic. There's one version of it. It's one truth. You just go learn that truth and you apply it. Then in life, in any field, the deeper you go in your knowledge, the more you see, oh, there are a lot of points of view, and there are a lot of theories, and there are a lot of schools of thought, and there's a lot of methodologies. Do I need to bring all of that and dump it on every person I, I meet in my life because I've specialized in a field and they haven't? No. There's a time and a place for that. And there's a time and a place where you're simply performing your duty as a scholar making sure that people have a better access to the knowledge they need in a way that acts as a fortress for them. This is your job. In any case, I didn't want to spend too much time on this. It's just uh, something that came up as we were looking at the hadith. Next hadith from the Holy Prophet ﷺ. He says, إِنَّ السَّمَاءَ وَالْأَرْضَ لَتَبْكِي عَلَى الْمُؤْمِنْ إِذَا مَاتَ أَرْبَعِينَ صَبَاحَا إن السماء والأرض لتبكي على المؤمن إذا مات أربعين صباحا وإنها لتبكي على العالم إذا مات أربعين شهرا. So we saw the previous hadith. The Imam did not give specifics. We saw Imam Al-Kadhim عليه السلام start by saying, when the believer dies, the angels weep. And at the end of the hadith, he came back and said, that's because the faqih, the alim, plays this role. He's a fortress to the believers. And he didn't go into specifics. In this hadith, the imam is giving us a ratio, a ranking. When we're going from this believer, the simple believer, all the way to the scholar. Is there a difference or not in how these angels are, are reacting? How this unique channel you have with the heavens is reacting, the land on which you pray is reacting? So here the hadith says, from the Holy Prophet ﷺ, he says, Truly, the heavens and the earth weep for a believer when he dies for 40 mornings, 40 days. If you're a believer and you pass away, for 40 days, this world weeps for you. And they weep for a scholar when he dies for 40 months. This is the ratio. This is a difference. It's a very big difference. 40 days and 40 months is multiplied by 30. 
Okay, and so when the Imam said in the previous hadith, he started with a believer and he ended with a scholar, that's why we said there's a very big spectrum. And we're going to see in the next hadith, I'm perhaps going to stop here for today, and we're going to continue in the next hadith, inshallah. There's a very big spectrum. The more you go into the hadith, the more you see that the spectrum is almost unlimited between the simple believer and the person who carries knowledge. The more knowledge you carry and the biggest criteria, the more you affect people with that knowledge, the more the ratio becomes incomparable, unlimited between the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will deal with you in the afterlife and how he will deal with the simple believer. To answer this question, then why would anyone want to become a teacher or a scholar? Well, the benefits are incredible. They're unmeasurable. And we're going to see a lot of examples of that. And in fact, we touched on some of those examples. If you go back earlier in the series, when we talked about how much more important it is in our religion to acquire knowledge than to worship. We spent a few lectures on that. And inshallah, this is you're going to see, it's going to fall in the same vein the next time we meet, so that the lecture is not too long. We'll stop here. We're going to start the next heading. And the merits of the scholar is the merit of the scholar over the worshiper. And we're going to see, and I've only chosen, I've only selected a few ahadith in this to make the point, otherwise there are too many, and some ahadith, it's just impossible to comment on them because of the, the spectrum is so wide that it's difficult to say anything beyond it. It's beyond what we can comprehend. So we just leave it at that. Okay, so inshallah, we're gonna continue where we're leaving off today with this hadith. And with this, we finish this uh, Last heading of the merits of the scholar associated with their death and their departure from this world. So inshallah, next time we meet, we continue off with the merits of the scholar over the worshipper. We'll continue with that. Questions, comments, concerns? Totally. I have a question. So, does a fakir have to be a scholar or otherwise known? Because, like, for example, like, you know, as, as a parent, your job is to teach your kids. Yeah. Like, so, does that mean, are you a fakir in that sense? Like, you're not a scholar. Like, you don't have knowledge to give someone walking on the street. Then, like, and not, like, they might know more than you. Yeah. It's not comparable, right? Yeah. So, it's an excellent question. Um, I'm going to reword it for you. Does every teacher have to be a fakir or are they? Uh, a faqih. Do they fall automatically in the definition of faqih because they carry a certain amount of knowledge in their teaching? The short answer is no. So we had hadith and we went through many of them. In these hadith, there was an emphasis on teaching. And so we can talk about any teacher. So long as you carry a knowledge and that you are teaching, then you fall under the category of you are a teacher of religion. That's why I'm combining them in a lot of ahadith when I talk. I say the teacher and the scholar, the teacher and the scholar. Some ahadith, no, they're very clear that now we're talking about a separate, specific category, class of people. Those are fuqaha. 
This is a different category. They deserve a different merit. And sometimes we have very clear indications from Ahlul Bayt that this is a rank. You know, let's not, we keep to each the rank that they have. Imam Hussain when he talked to Habib ibn Mudahir, this is like the more we understand this, the more we understand the word. Imam Hussain when he writes to him, he says, That's it. This is the highest merit that you can have from Ahlul Bayt The Imam says about him, he's giving him a badge of honor. It's not that you and I, we call someone a faqih. They may or may not be, we don't know. And to what extent are they? We don't know. God knows. But when the Imam says, No, this man meets all the criteria of fuqaha of Ahlul Bayt. Or we have a hadith from Imam Al-Baqir, Imam Al-Sadiq, Imam Al-Kadhim, in which they say, so-and-so is a faqih. Oh, that's it. And our, so our scholars rely on those ahadith very differently than they rely on just someone narrating a hadith from the imam. This is not just a normal narrator. He doesn't just, he hasn't memorized 10,000 ahadith. No, no. He knows them inside out with all of their applications. With the, He's a true scholar. He's a faqih. Right? That's what they mean. So we have ahadith where it's impossible to interpret it. It's very clear that they're talking about a specific rank. This is someone who has achieved very vast and very technical, very deep knowledge of religion. You can't become faqih, you know, just with spiritual insight. I'll put it that way. Okay? It's very possible for you to sit and worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and spiritually he opens your heart and your eyes and, and, and you become this incredibly insightful person spiritually. That's very possible. But you're not a faqih. Faqih is you sit there and you study day in, day out, you memorize, you understand, you ask questions, you until you, just like the normal way you learn knowledge, right? That's fuqaha, that's faqih. Okay, so there's a technical knowledge that's required, which you and I will not have just, for instance, by the little life that I had, I want to pass that knowledge down to my children. Yes, I'm a teacher, and I will get the ranks of the teacher. And to the extent that I affect others and that's why we said we're spending so much time on this part of the series we spent i don't know how many lectures on it um i had the number before 20 some lectures i don't remember the exact number talking about the scholar and the teacher and i repeated it multiple multiple times that if we focus externally in this part it may look like we're spending way too much time on a completely irrelevant topic but if you understand what we're trying to do, what we're trying to say is, this is what we should all be right now. All of us, we carry a certain amount of knowledge. By default, we should all be in the category of the teacher. And teacher does not mean that you have an official microphone and you're talking to people. It could be as simple as you have siblings and you have friends and you have coworkers and you have children or you will have children you will have a family. You have a, a sphere of influence in this world. Yes or no? Yes. That's it. In that sphere, you are the teacher. You are a scholar. And you don't know what will happen later in life. How many stories do we have of people who thought that they are just your typical believer? I know what I know. I'm going on in my life, living my life. I have my job. I attend majalis here and there. And then they say something happens in my life. And suddenly I find myself in a community 
where I am the most knowledgeable person among these people. And then you see this person, they have a choice to make. Suddenly they realize, it hits them that they have a responsibility, they have a duty towards these people. They never viewed themselves, they never thought of themselves as a scholar. SubhanAllah, today in this community in Ottawa, in another location, in another Islamic center, there's a Fatiha right now going on at these hours. There's a Fatiha of a man who falls exactly in this category. And he's told me himself, he traveled elsewhere in Canada and suddenly he found himself in a community that did not have a scholar. Said, they're good, nice, kind, good people, followers of Ahlul Bayt salam. They have a little gathering place where they come together, they remember Imam Hussein salam, but they don't really have any ability to organize real events, to get together, to do majalis, to have lectures. They don't know much about religion. It's like suddenly overnight, I found myself the scholar of the place when I never imagined myself that I would have to be that. And there are so many of those stories where people suddenly, someone who says, for instance, I traveled to the Philippines and I found people kind-hearted, compassionate, beautiful people, but they know nothing about religion. He says, I could not get myself to leave. They want to know. And they asked me questions and I answered them and suddenly to them, in their eyes, I'm a scholar. He says, I know I'm not a scholar. What do I know? But the little I know to them, which I was taken for granted to them, that is a treasure trove. It's like, that's it. That became my community. And I took them over. And I became their scholar. And with time, that meant that I have to go and educate myself quickly and learn quickly. And so all of this can change overnight. At least so long as you start with the point that so long as you're doing good in the world, don't put a barrier to how you fall or not in this category. If you want to pursue this officially and reach the higher ranks, this is not going to be something that happens randomly. You're not going to be a faqih randomly. You're not going to stumble into fuqaha randomly. That's what I mean. But this does not mean that you're not going to be a true scholar or teacher. Scholar simply in the sense of someone who is alim. Someone who carries ilm. And this is what doesn't translate well in English. In Arabic, when you say alim, it's someone who carries knowledge. But when you say scholar, it's like a black and white. Are you a scholar or not? No, in Arabic, it allows for a spectrum. Everyone can be a alim. You're a alim in the things that you have ilm in. The things that you know, you're a scholar in. You're a carrier of knowledge in. And tomorrow you'll know more and you'll have more knowledge. So every one of us is somewhere on that spectrum today. You have a certain amount of knowledge. What are you doing with it? You have to be doing something with it. And hopefully you're doing something or trying to find ways that you do something with it that goes beyond you. The moment you do that, you fall in these categories. You become now a teacher and you're influencing others. And to each and what they think is their way of affecting in the world. Social media, writing books, lecturing, talking to your friends or co-workers, whatever it may be, raising your children properly, affect someone else. And we're going to explain why this is important in the next hadith, inshallah. And we're going to talk about, after this next heading of the merits and the ranks of the teacher over the, or the scholar over the worshiper, we're going to talk about 
the merits and the ranks of the scholar in the afterlife. And this is where the true merit will show. And this is how, inshallah, it will be so inspiring and encouraging to become that. This is what awaits the person. If our whole lives are about trying to multiply our rewards, to have one more hasana, that's what we, we all pray in the qunut. رَبَّنَا آتِنَا فِي الدُّنْيَا حَسَنَةً We want one more hasana in this world. We want one more hasana that counts for the afterlife. Then we're going to see what happens to your hasanat if you affect other people. It's a, the easy way, the bargain that you get. You can do it all by yourself, or you can find a way to double and triple and multiply to no ends your rewards by starting to affect other people. This is inshallah what's awaiting us. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين